0: listening to the sermon podcast from real life Pullman campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Glad you're here. We're going to jump into this because we got a few miles to go before the sun sets today. Um, we have been in this series uh, working through the temple. And so, what we're going to do is follow the format that we followed in the last couple of weeks where we're going to read the story, then, we're going to step out of the story and talk about uh, the temple a little bit. And then, we're going to come back into the story, and hopefully, we'll be able to land the plane sometime before midnight. How many of you guys have to work tomorrow? Yeah, I don't, so. <clears throat> Merry Christmas! All right, Luke chapter two. Let's go. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Naz- Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Now, we've talked a little bit about this up until this point, but I really want to step in and kind of pull this apart and ask ourselves, what's going on here? Why is it that there is no room for them in the guest room and what is the guest room and where does that come from? And what's what are, what's the dynamics here? And this is one of those moments where in order to really understand the depth of what's happening in the story, context matters, exclamation point. So I wanna show you some pictures. Uh, this will help us understand. This picture is a typical four room insula style home. In the land of Israel If you come with me to Israel We will go stand in one That has been completely reconstructed So you'll know exactly what it's like Um, It's cool Um, They're amazing things And then we'll read a story About some, some people who tear the roof off And drop their paralytic friend down through And you'll take a look at the roof and go How did they do that? Because their faith Prompted them to do so like, when you have faith that Jesus can heal your friend, are a few sticks going to stand in your way? Right? Bonus content, that's Thursday night only. Yeah. You guys get all the good stuff. So I want to show you some diagrams. Uh, you know what I, what I told Sunday morning, those, those people, what I told them is, you know how they always get that, well, that's a sermon for another day. That's another sermon for another day. You guys are not going to get that anymore. You're going to get all the good stuff so here 's a diagram of, of one way that they would do this where they would build the home and they would have the stable uh, there along with the animals because one of the things that 's typical in these insular style homes is um, there 's a, there's a place inside the home, kind of like a, like a garage underneath a house on the bottom story of a house there 's a garage there that's, but it 's where they keep their animals it 's their animal garage so that 's the stable uh, and that That would be one way to see this. And this is one that they've actually excavated the, uh, the, the living space. And this is how it was arranged. I want to show you another one that gives you an even better example. This is another one that's actually been, uh, excavated. Um, that is, I believe this is the one in Chorazin. If you come with me, we'll go stand in this one. Um, but I want to focus in on this. So you have typically these, this general courtyard, and then you have the, the general living area and then the storage. And you can go, well, where did they sleep? Well, there was typically one space where they all kind of slept together. The entire insula, sometimes 50, 60, 70 people, they all kind of sleep in one room, right? Kind of dorm dorm style, um, which raises a question. Uh, how do they have kids? Well, there's a room for that. And with 50, 60, 70 people living in an insula... How easy is it to get access to that well it 's pretty easy. You just have to schedule it and everybody knows what that room 's for, so if you 're in there, everybody knows what you 're doing to which we typically go ooh that 's so gross, right." Here's one of the things I think about our culture and sexuality. And we're gonna do a series next year called The Sex Talk where we're gonna spend some, about six weeks talking about God's view on sexuality and how we should be talking about it in the church. One of the problems that we face in our culture is that we hide all the really beautiful things about sex and we expose all the things that should be hidden. Like we have it exactly backwards. And so we don't know how to talk about it well because it's all full of shame and and embarrassment and all those kinds of things. And that's not how sexuality should be at all that 's not how it should be at all, so the, for them it 's this beautiful thing it's this beautiful thing. you want to schedule the room, you schedule the room, and that 's one of the reasons why, when you first get married the the son will build a room for him and his wife to stay in for the first two years. He builds that room, and then they just stay in there by themselves because In your first two years, you know this. You don't want to have to schedule the room. Nobody else would get access to it. It's just... (laughs) You remember. right? My dad told me this. My dad, my saint of a father. He said, if you put a bean in a jar every time that you have sex in the first two years of your marriage and then after the first two years you take a bean out every time you have sex you will never empty the jar so that's what he told me I don't know so far I haven't, I haven't hit the bottom of the jar yet but I, hey just celebrated 25 years we still got time we still got time so but here's here's the deal once they're done with that two years then that room is typically repurposed into something else and they then uh, move into the general sleeping area with the rest of them now there is over here on the left hand side there's this guest house this room is reserved for only for guests to come in and stay this is the guest room it's called Cataluma. now uh marty Corrected me last week Two weeks ago I said it was Pendokion, And he's like it's not Pendokion, it's Kondaluma Okay he's right but he made it sound like I just picked the word out of thin air um, that's, that's inaccurate that's inaccurate. So I told him after the service, I was like, "Dude, you can throw me under the bus if you want to, but you better give some context for what I'm saying because I'm not a moron." Uh, <laughs> the word is actually connected to this discussion. It's the other word that's used uh, to translate an inn or a general uh, housing place for for which is the other option for a place that guests would stay. But Luke here in Luke chapter two uses the word kataluma, which means guest room. Um, so. So, there, I'm not an idiot. Uh, maybe I still am, but anyway, so the guest house, you have to understand something. You have to understand something. This is a hospitality driven culture. Think about this. In the story of Lot with Sodom and Gomorrah, the two angels come to his house. Remember all the people that are living in Sodom come and they knock on the door and they say, um, we wanna have sex with the two guys that are staying at your house. And Lot says, no, you can't do that. They're like, you need to do it or we'll storm your house. So what does Lot do? Gives them his daughters, to which we go, What? In a hospitality culture, that's absolutely what you would do. You would never. In fact, if you remember the movie Lone Survivor, if you haven't watched that movie, if you have a problem with rated R movies, don't watch it. But it's a movie about um, a Navy SEAL unit. Everybody gets killed but one guy, and he's wounded. He's all shot up. And he he winds up being taken in by this uh, Islamic Arab village. He's an American soldier taken in by this Islamic Arab Arab village. And the Islamic army comes in to try to get this guy. And they literally, many of them, lose their life protecting him. Like that's even modern day, that's still normal. Hospitality in this culture, absolutely core. You, because it's also an honor-shame culture. If you don't take care of your guests well, you bring shame on your whole family. If you, if you think about um, the movie 47 Ronin with uh, Keanu Reeves where this, he dishonored his family and so he was exiled. And there was never a way for him to re-earn the honor. And so all these Ronin, which is the name for the people that they give that are exiled, they wind up coming in and saving the village. And they still are exiled even after they do this great thing. They're still exiled because they brought shame on their family. Like this is the way an honor-shame culture works. It's why in World War II, when we were fighting Japan, um, they those guys would literally none of them would surrender. The Japanese to the man would have to be killed because that's an honor shame. Like it would be shame you would bring shame on your whole family to to give up to to surrender. This is the way this culture works. And when we don't understand that, we don't, we don't really get the, the depth of what's going to happen here. That the reality is this guest house, when your family shows up, absolutely, you would never let anyone else take care of your family. You wouldn't do that. It'd be Shameful. Which raises the question, why is there no room for them in, the, in their family's guest room? How is that even possible? I mean, at least bring them in, let them sit in the court, let them sleep in the courtyard. She's pregnant for crying out loud. And maybe that's the point. Now, there's two options here for what happened, where they actually went. One of them is that they went into the area of the stable or over here by the chicken coop. If you go, go back to the first diagram, there you go. See the stable section there? Uh, go back to the picture. One more. No, the picture, the black and white picture. There you go. Um, underneath here is this area, this garage area where they keep their animals. That's one option for where they went. Um, that, that's an option, but here's my issue. Let's say you knew a bunch of your family were coming into town, so you cleaned out your barn because you knew you needed someplace to keep them, okay? How long does it take for the animals to start messing it up again? Yeah, that's the first question. Second question Of all the family that comes to visit you in your house, do you put the woman who's about to give birth in the stable? (laughs) Would you? Like, of course not. No, that's not what you do. That's ridiculous. So either way, it doesn't really matter. Here's, let's, go to the, let's go to the first picture of the cave. Um, this is much more uh, an example of where they would have been. Now, this isn't the cave, and it's not even actually all that near Bethlehem. This is a place called Kokhav Hafshahar which is a mouthful. It means morning star. And I'm like, why didn't they just say morning star, right? Because they did. They said, <laughs> uh, This is an ultra-Orthodox community. And um, it's a group of people who moved from New York over purchased land in Israel. And they built this little uh, town there. It's really funny. We went there. The first time I ever went here, um, by the way, if you come with me to Israel, we'll go to this cave. Um, it, the first time I ever went here, we were there on Sabbath, and so they have a gate across their road because it's a gated little community. And there's a guard in the, in the booth, in the guard, little guard tower there next to the gate. And so our guide walks over to the guard and says, hey, um, we have a group of American tourists here. They're here on a study tour. We're wondering if they could go see the shepherd's cave. Well, the guard goes, well, I don't care if you go see the shepherd's cave, but I can't push the button to open the gate. Because it's Sabbath. You can't. Work so our our guide goes <laughs> goes and gets on the bus <laughs> like a lot of good you are guard um, what happens if what happens if somebody attacks you on the Sabbath what are you gonna do anyway so that's where this is this is Kokhav Hashahar Shepherd's Cave next photo. This is the inside of it. What I want to pay attention to is, in this particular photo, is look at the ceiling. The ceiling of the cave is black. That's not black rock. That's soot from fires. This is exactly the kind of environment that we're talking about Jesus being born into. Okay? Next photo. That is the ground. It is not dirt. It's... How do do you say that tastefully? It's sheep droppings. It's this thick, covered in the whole cave. Like, that's what... Have you ever seen um, the Disney Tarzan cartoon movie? The little elephant? Is this water sanitary? Like, I think about that every time I see Like, this is not sanitary. This is not... This is not pretty. This isn't the the beautiful picture with the hay and the clean and the wooden crossbuck manger. In fact, if you look at the next photo, we we should have one more photo, right? Yeah. Um, On the far right bottom corner, there's a little kind of a raised area with a flat space over there. That's the manger. In this area, there's no such thing as a manger that's a wooden crossbuck box with hay in it. Go over there. I defy you to this day to go over there and find enough trees to build a manger. But there's no shortage of rock. They build everything out of rock. They've been picking rocks out of their fields for 4,000 years, and they're still full of rocks. Everything here is built out of stone. This, welcome baby Jesus into the world. This is what, where, they, where he would have come, or something very much like this is where he would have come from. And the question that I have is, why? Why are Mary and Joseph okay with enduring this? What in the world would give them the ability to be able to take this? You have to know that the reason why they're in this cave is because Joseph took on her shame of being pregnant. Now, there's a couple of options here um, with Joseph's, pregnant, or Joseph and Joseph's pregnancy. Joseph wasn't pregnant. That would be a miracle um, <laughs> of a whole other caliber. Uh, Which raises a whole other series of questions in my mind But that's (laughs) Not even another sermon for another day We're just not going to talk about it Uh, Oh gosh Sorry Sorry Sometimes I just need to shut up Uh, Sometimes What's on the insides Shouldn't be on the outsides This is a lesson I've been learning. Uh, So here's the the thing. It says in the Matthew account of this story that um, Joseph had in his mind to divorce Mary quietly. Right? Now, uh, Brad Gray in his Walking the Text weekly video series uh, had a great video on this this week. So if if you're curious about learning more about this, um, this week's Walking the Text teaching series was really good. It was really good on this particular topic. But what he talks about is Joseph has a couple of options here when it comes to divorcing her. He can divorce her privately or he can divorce her publicly. Now, if he divorces her privately, all the money, the dowry, the, all that stuff, it all goes back to her family. So he loses all that money. If he divorces her publicly, then he gets to keep all that money and she gets to go back home with nothing because she shamed her family she got pregnant illegitimately and i know that we all go but it was god right uh, again i would say this if i have a 22 year old daughter that was up here singing tonight beautiful voice and she came to me and said dad i'm pregnant but don't worry it was god I think, sure um why in the world do you call your boyfriend god And number two, tell God to come in here in the kitchen. We're having a talk, right? There's going to be some conversations to be had. You know, they're not any more naive than we are. Like, of course, everyone in the community believes this is an illegitimate pregnancy. Joseph has in mind to do the the thing of integrity, which is better for her and worse for him, actually. to To divorce her quietly, the angel comes to him and says, don't do this. This is of God. And he says, okay, I'll stay with her, but in order to do that, he has to take on her shame. Essentially, to the whole community to, and to his whole family, he's saying, the, the child is mine. And he didn't even do anything wrong. Like, he didn't even do anything wrong. And his entire family is looking at him going, oh my gosh, you have shamed the whole family. How could you do this? Now I want to leave that story and then we'll come back to it. I don't want to talk about the temple metaphor that we've been using. So. Let's throw up the temple diagram. This week, we are talking about the holy place. And so this is beyond the the steps there. We've been moving into the holy of holies, which is where the presence of God is. This is where we're gonna land. This is where we're gonna find God with us. And it's gonna be stunning where we find him. And you won't find him anywhere else because you don't get to pick where the presence of God dwells. He does. We have to go there. We can't entice him to go where we want him to go. In the holy place, this is a place of consecration. This is a place where you and I, we commit ourselves to the mission. Remember, we learn at the steps that God's promises are secure, and because of that, we can have hope. But we have to prepare ourselves to be able to be part of the fulfillment. So we go to the altar and we confess, and then we go to the porch and we repent. Here in the holy place, we consecrate ourselves for the mission that God's laid ahead of us. We commit, set apart, we rest in, in decisions that that we make to actually follow God. I don't know where it's gonna take me. I don't know where, what it all means, but I don't care. I am committed to being God's instrument on this earth, regardless of where that, where that goes or what it means. Here's a question. How does the world know that you and I have been set apart Really interesting thought because for a lot of us, what we do is when we come into the world, we start to engage people that aren't part of the church. What we'll say is, Well, you'll know that I'm a Christian because what I say I believe, or because of the truth that I can espouse, or because of how I can convince you that my argument makes sense, that there, there's just got to be something more out there, right? Like, and all that stuff's good, it's important, but the Bible says over and over and over and over again how the world will know that we have been set apart as god's vessels i'll begin with psalm 133 here's what it says how good and pleasant it is when god's people live together in unity it's like precious oil poured on the head running down on the beard running down on aaron's beard this was my favorite psalm Down on the collar of his robe It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion For there the Lord bestows his blessing Even life forevermore Where does God bestow his blessing? Go back to the first slide of Psalm 133 How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. At the end, he says, it is there that God bestows his blessing, even life evermore. Where does God bestow his blessing? Where brothers live together in unity. And it makes total sense because his analogy is, if you go, go on reading it again, his analogy, go back to the next slide, go to the next slide. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. What is that? It's the anointing of Aaron for the Aaronic priesthood. What he says is, when you and I live together in unity, it's like we're set apart for the priesthood. And you know this to be true because if the Holy Spirit isn't in our midst and we aren't all submitted to him, it will take us about 10 minutes to get mad at each other. What the Bible says is the mark that we have been set apart is that we are committed to living together in unity. And I wonder if you ask the average person on the average street in the average town in America, would you define the church that way? Or would you define the church by other things? What would that person say? Would they say, oh my goodness, those people, I don't get the whole God thing, but man, how they love one another. Is that what they would say? That is what they said about the early church. In fact, the Roman generals who were killing Christians kept appealing to Caesar, going, stop making us kill these people. I got good news. That's Old Testament. We're we're New Testament Christians, right? What about that guy, Jesus? Um, maybe he said something about this that we might be able to tie into what, look at John 13, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another by this. Everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you have really good, solid airtight theology, Oh, I read read that wrong. If you have really good convincing apologetic arguments. (laughs) If your doctrine's right. I'm so tired of people wanting to fight me over petty issues of doctrine. Like doctrine's important. I mean, the answer to bad theology isn't no theology. (laughs) We want to have good theology. But... There are people that when, you know, when we teach in our church, like God believes in your potential. He doesn't see you as a problem to solve. He sees you as a human being with potential to set free. There are people like, no, the Bible teaches total depravity. I'm out. I've had, I can't even tell you how many people I've had to leave the church over that issue alone. Which number one, you're wrong. Number two, so what? even if we are totally depraved by sin God still sees us as humans full of potential to set free stop focusing on the problem let's work towards the solution like we gotta love one another if we don't do that well then nothing else matters this is how we are set apart in this world That's what the Bible says, plain and simple. One more. I could do lots more. One more. Romans 12. Because Paul, I mean, you got to have Jesus and Paul in the presence of two witnesses, a matter will be confirmed. Can we just stop there for a minute? Bless those who persecute you. Just get that one right, you'll change the world. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. This is what Paul will go on to say. Here's the deal. What you and I have to understand is it doesn't matter two bits what you say you believe. If we don't love each other well, none of the other stuff has any power or weight. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Like, I could, I could comprehend all mysteries and, and know all great things and speak with the tongues of men and angels. But if I don't have love, I'm a gong. It, it all amounts, in the great words of Matt Foley, motivational speaker, it all amounts to Jack Squat. <laughs> I wanted to do that for my people who didn't get the the total depravity comment. Some of you are like total depravity, some of you are like, man, folly, motivational speaker. You know, become all things to all people, that by all means I might win some. (laughs) Listen, why are Mary and Joseph willing to endure the shunning of their family in order to bring the Son of God into the world? I have a thought. I think it's because they loved God more than they loved being right. And because of that, they were able to love people better. Oh, that we would get that right. And with that, we're going to move towards the Lord's table. Every week we take communion together. So if you're new with us, we have an open table. What that means is anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake. But we want you to hold the elements to the end, and we'll take them all together. Now, here's something that we're going to start doing in 2019 that I want to uh, give you as a way to do this week. I know that some of you guys are really busy with um, Christmas and different things this week, and and you're still going to try to have your small groups happen. Um, that's awesome. If you want to do that Uh, you don't have to do that on a week like this but if you're going to um, here's some questions i want to throw some questions at you to discuss during your group okay this will be your we're going to use move into more of a kind of like a lecture lab mindset so we're going to have the lecture and then you're going to go into your home group and have an application lab question number one in your life right now who wouldn't have a place in your guest room Maybe the story of Mary and Joseph ought to penetrate our hearts deep enough to solve that. Who is it? Maybe you should be willing to talk about that with your home group. I don't know if you know this, but we called our church Real Life. Because we want to talk about real life things in a real life way. We all got stuff. We all got people, hurts, that we're trying to struggle through. Who is it? And how do you solve that? Next question. At this stage in your life, where could you be more set apart? Where could you look more like Jesus in your life right now? Maybe that's a good place to discuss in your group. Third question. Whom in your life do you need to love better And how are you going to do that? It is not enough for you and I to say, you know, old cousin Larry, I need to be nicer to that guy. Or brother Bill or whatever. Whoever it is. I need to be nicer to that guy. I'm going to work on that sometime. And then the next time you see him, you treat him like dirt. It's not okay. It's not okay. That's not living set apart. Each one of us is going to have to make the decision on who that is. And what we're going to do about it. But I'll tell you this. If you're not willing to consecrate yourself before God, when you come into the presence of God next week, you're going to miss it. Because you're not prepared Like, this is part of it. You don't get the blessing of the presence of God without going through the process of preparing yourself. This is part of it. It's part of why we take communion every week, because it's this full-on reminder that you will never get away from the reality that the Jesus way demands, first and foremost, that we lay our lives down. This reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread... He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. God, we want to acknowledge, first and foremost, that your word clearly says over and over again, that the way that we love one another is a direct representation of the fact that we've been set, a, set apart by you. And so, Lord, I want to ask you to sift our hearts. Holy Spirit, put on our hearts who we need to love better and how we can do that. And then, Lord, as we talk amongst our friends and family this week and as we maybe meet with our home groups or sit around the dinner table together, that we would have the courage to name that person that we're going to do, um, that we're going to love better. Um, yeah. Lord, rally around us people who will never let us settle for second rate because we want to make your name great. Thank you for meeting us in a cave in your name. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Also, if you enjoyed this message, make sure you check out the new podcast from our lead pastor Aaron Couch called A Better Conversation. Search for it on our website, iTunes, and the Google Play Store.